Hey, and welcome to Vineyard Carlos podcast. It's great to have you with us. Today, we're starting a new series. We're doing a four-parter looking at the pursuit of holiness. This is part of our Live Like Jesus discipleship program, and we are really, really excited. Maybe for you, you hear me say holiness, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I really want to listen to that. That's a bit challenging, but you know what? It is going to be so good. I can't wait for you to hear it. We've got James, our senior pastor, unpacking this uh, the first preach this week. Uh, and so whether you are out and about going for a walk, whether in your house chilling, I pray that you would enjoy this message. Today I'm starting a new series called The Pursuit of Holiness. And this series is part of an ongoing discipleship series. Many of you will know that about a year ago, October 2020, we started a series called Live Like Jesus, Embracing the Lifestyle of a Disciple. And during that series, we're looking at, well, what does it really mean to be an authentic follower of Jesus? And that Live Like Jesus series was essentially an introduction, and it provided us with a framework and a starting point to build on. And over the last year, and as we move forwards over the coming years, we're going to continue to delve back into this series, this language, Live Like Jesus. Um, and if you, if you recall, we talked about the goal of discipleship as being Christ-likeness becoming like Jesus and continuing his mission. And how the model that Jesus presents us with in the Gospels is one of apprenticeship that leads to transformation. An apprentice spends time with their teacher and learns to imitate them and to do the things that they do. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus encountering people and then he's like, come and follow me, come and follow me, come and, come and learn from me. And he's basically saying to them, come and spend time with me, learn to live with me. And because discipleship at its heart, at its essence, is about learning a new way of life, the way of Jesus, that's what he's inviting us into. And the problem is most of us want the life, but we aren't prepared to embrace the lifestyle. And it's like so many different things in life. I might want to be really fit. Um, in fact, I am really fit, but... Uh, am I prepared to embrace the commitment of regular exercise? Definitely something that I have struggled with throughout my whole life. I might want to be healthier, but am I prepared to stop eating really bad food? Late night stuffed crust pizza from Domino's. It's strong food. I might want to learn a new skill, but am I prepared to put in the time to learn and master it? It's the same with discipleship to Jesus. If we want to live like Jesus, are we willing to embrace the lifestyle that will enable us to be able to do that? And as we set out in that introductory series back in October, at its simplest level, the lifestyle of a disciple involves two things, being with Jesus and doing what Jesus did. On the one hand, we've got to spend time with Jesus, time in his presence, whether that's through reading the Bible, prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, Sabbath, all of these disciplines and practices that help us to be with Jesus. And then on the other hand, we've got to step out and have a go uh, for ourselves at the things that Jesus talks about. Be his hands and feet on this earth, advancing the kingdom, sharing the gospel, loving the poor, healing the sick, fighting injustice. Be with Jesus do what Jesus did. And they're like two pedals that we press on when we spend time with Jesus and then we do what he did and, and it creates momentum. It, it can't just be one without the other. We can't just spend time with Jesus and then do none of the things that Jesus talked about. It's, it's both and. And in the process of being with Jesus and learning to do the things that Jesus did, that's the place of transformation and that's where transformation begins to occur. 
Jesus was the holiest man that ever lived. And so as we step into this process of transformation and becoming more like Jesus, it's clear that as his apprentices, as people that are trying to follow him, that we should more and more begin to reflect his holiness. Now, many of us might hear that word holiness and instantly it feels like a heavy thing. It's like, that feels pretty big, pretty deep, a burden. But as we go through this series, I hope that we'll see that the pursuit of holiness is not the way of a heavy yoke, a heavy burden. It's an invitation to the easy yoke, to a life that lives more and more free from the constraints and entanglement of of sin. And so bit by bit, we become transformed and we change. And there's actually a lightness that comes over us. It's not something that should just be like this heavy burden. I believe that there's a real, very real danger to Christians and the church in the West that we have a lopsided gospel. And by that, I mean that it's very easy to focus on one aspect of God's nature. And you can end up, if you're not careful, well, most of you don't preach week in, week out, but for the preachers amongst us, that you can end up preaching a half gospel. So, for instance, if we concentrate exclusively upon God's love and God's grace, which are massively important, so, so important, but without holding that intention with God's holiness and justice, we get to an extreme position. And the outworking of this is God loves you and you don't need to change and you don't need to become more like him. We're saved by grace. That's enough. (laughs) and And that's where it ends. But we don't actually ever change as Christians. If you go to the other extreme and you only talk about God's holiness without his love and grace, then you end up becoming legalistic and really slightly terrifying, if I'm honest, judgmental, striving, works-based. And it feels that, you know, I talked about holiness can feel like a heavy word. It feels like this burden and this weight. So those are the two extremes. We have got to hold both together. We've got to hold God's love and God's grace with God's holiness and God's justice and those two things being held together. And I think that we see this in Romans 12 verses one to two because it does a beautiful job of holding them together. It says this, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy. So Romans 12, the first 11 chapters are talking about the the incredible news, the good news of the gospel and how amazing God's grace is. So in view of God's mercy, in view of his rescuing you, what should you do? You should offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's that word there, isn't it? Holy, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Coming back to that slide that we saw earlier, this process of transformation, how? By the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Paul urges us to devote ourselves to God. And we've just finished a three-week series, haven't we? Devoted, devoted to Jesus, devoted to his people, devoted to his mission. And really what we're saying again, this is almost a continuation. Uh, It's not like a completely separate thing. You might be, well, how does holiness, pursuit of holiness fit with devotion? Well, Well, it's at its heart. It's about as we devote ourselves to Jesus, as we devote ourselves to discipleship, apprenticeship to him, the outworking of that will be holiness, that we will become more like Jesus. And the base passage that I'm using is 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. So I'm just going to read that, grab your Bibles. And it says this, 
As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. The message, I love the way the message puts it. It says, don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, just doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then. You do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy. I think that these verses are a wake-up call, aren't they? Could, could you say that your life is a life energetic and blazing with holiness? Such a powerful picture, isn't it? Blazing with holiness. I think that maybe many of us have given up even desiring this because we feel defeated, we feel crushed, we live um, life in, in the grey. We might have had a time during our journey of faith where we tried, but maybe we've eventually just become worn down by the reality that we just keep messing up. And so we spend our life living in grace. And that's not wrong in itself, but we might even use that as an excuse to not even try becoming more Christ-like. And as we go through this series, as we look at Romans 6 and 7, we see this wrestle between our sinful nature and the, the way that God comes in and changes us. And there's just beautiful truth and wisdom in those chapters uh, that Paul's going to be looking at next week. N.T. Wright says this, he says, Holiness is fashioning our lives according to the pattern of the perfect life, that of Christ. So as we take a step back, what does even holiness mean? It's one of those words that's like, well, how, how would I go about defining it? I wonder, you know, just have a think about it. How would you define that word holiness? Well, our word holy derives from the English word halig, which itself comes from the German helig, referring to health, happiness and wholeness. The English language also employs words from the Latin, so sanctus holy, in words like saint, saintly, sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more holy, becoming like Jesus. And in the Old Testament, words based on kuds, the Hebrew word for holy, appear over 850 times. So holiness then is one of the most central concepts in biblical theology. But it's interesting, isn't it? If you were to take a sample of, interesting thought this, over the last 10 years, for instance, all of the sermons that have been preached in the UK and Ireland, I don't think anybody's actually recorded this, and the nature of what those sermons are, I wonder how many of them talk about this subject of holiness. In the New Testament, hagios, which is Greek for holy or saint, occurs 150 times together with its associated words. And hagios means to be separate, dedicated or consecrated to God. We come back to that image of being devoted to God. God is holiness. God is holy, sorry. Holiness is in his nature and character. It's not an attribute. It is who he is. It's at his core. People and things are said to be holy by their relation to God as they're offered by him or to him or before him. Now, sometimes this concept of holiness can be so hard to get our heads round, but at its core, it's becoming like Jesus. It's like becoming like Christ. Chuck Yill wrote this. He says, all too often our holiness teaching starts from the wrong place. Let's be clear that holiness does not begin at the point of surrender and crisis in the life of the believer. 
It's too man-centered, too self-orientated, too sin-centered. The place for it to begin is with Jesus Christ and his perfect adequacy. Jesus is our supreme example. As God's own son, he alone is truly holy, as God is holy. So for us, holiness is Christ-likeness. God is the perfection of holiness. Revelation 4 verse 8, holy, holy, holy. Jesus said that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father, John 14, 7 to 9. Jesus is therefore the incarnation of the perfection of holiness. As the per perfect holy son of God, all that Jesus did and said was holy. His whole act, being and speaking was holy. Nothing in his life deviated from the perfection of God. So when holiness is thought of like this, as we see it in the person of Jesus, then it becomes inspiring, it becomes attainable. Simon Ponsonby says this great phrase. He says, holiness is God's best for us, not his burden for us. I'm gonna say that again. Holiness is God's best for us, not his burden for us. If we're not careful though, it can feel like a burden and we can live under rather than feeling like it's God's best, that it's God's blessing for us. And so I just wanna jump into a passage in Isaiah to see what happens when we encounter the living God in holiness. So I'm gonna be in uh, Isaiah 6, verses one through eight. It says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying and they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Sometimes I feel like I don't do that justice. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You, you know, this picture, this, this tune, and I'm not going to sing because I'm just going to let it down. But I, I think that it would have been just this beautiful chant. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. At the sound of their voices... The doorpost and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. As we go and just unpack this passage, I think we're going to see some beautiful things about his holiness. And the first one is this, that we see in this passage, is that God's holiness overwhelms us. That's what we see in the example of Isaiah. No doubt, if you ask many people whether they would like an encounter with God, I think if you ask them, they would say, yeah, why not? I'll have an encounter with God. The experience of Isaiah that we now look at could cause us to be a little bit cautious. In fact, you can read some of the stories about the Azusa Street revival, when the sense a revival is when people come to faith in their droves, that there's a move of God. And it says that when the sense of God's glory was so overpowering that the preacher hid inside the pulpit. You can imagine, it's like, oh my goodness, God's glory and his presence is so real that he hid. Isaiah has a vision of God in the temple and he's in the throne room. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. 
the seraphim are singing first and foremost of God's holiness. Isn't that really interesting? They're not singing of his love or his power or any other attribute. They're singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Old Testament scholar Professor John Oswald says that this threefold repetition, holy, 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 is the strongest form of all superlatives in the, in the Hebrew. There's no stronger way of being able to say it. If you want to make a point, you say it three times. And so this threefold, holy, 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 it's like just trying to break through. I want you to take a moment and think about that throne room where the Lord is high and exalted, high and lifted up. Just imagine yourself in the throne room. Isaiah is overwhelmed with the vision. He is shaking. And when the holiness of God overwhelms you, you realise that he is so far beyond compare, that he is so perfect, that he's so absent of anything limited or distorted or broken. There's this perfection upon him. You that you're so overwhelmed with his perfection and his purity, you realise, I can't mess with him. I can't beat him. I can't argue with him. I can't avoid him. I can't ignore him. All of those things. And all of those things we do naturally until we see the holiness of God. When we see the holiness of God, I believe it's so overwhelming that all of those things just become secondary. They're, they're put to the side because in that moment, it's the holiness of God. Have you, ever, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced the awe of God, the majesty of God, the otherness of God, the holy otherness of God? He is the Lord that is no other. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. You know, interestingly, if we go back at some of the passages that we've looked at the last three weeks, Acts 3 um, Acts 4, sorry, 31, it talks about the Holy Spirit. The place where they were was shaken. Acts 2, it's shaken. Again, it's this, this picture, the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. There is something about the awesomeness and majesty of God that when he comes in power, it's like this shaking. There is nothing muted, gentle, calm or peaceful about this worship that we're hearing here. You know, it's not just kind of sitting down. It's not a lament that it's booming out, that it shakes the very foundations of the temple of God. Worship that overwhelms our senses. So we have this first point is that his holiness, it overwhelms us. So his holiness overwhelms us. And secondly, it then his holiness undoes us. Woe to me, verse five, I cried, for I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. A true encounter with God, the Holy One, often leaves us completely undone. He believes himself ruined. The Hebrew word means destroyed. Like why, why does he feel this way? Because he's but a human and God is God because he's a mere creature and he's met the creator God. And mostly because he becomes aware of his sinfulness, of his mess before God's blazing holiness. God doesn't tell Isaiah in this moment that he's sinful. He doesn't need to because the light reveals darkness. God's holiness exposes man's sinfulness. The word that Isaiah applies to himself, unclean, is about the furthest condition away from holiness. 
I talked earlier just about whether you've ever experienced one of those moments of feeling overwhelmed by the holiness of God or even undone by the holiness of God. I can remember when I was 19 and I was a student and it was, it was early on in my, probably, I think it was probably the end of my first year as a student. And there was a church down the road and actually Mike Pilavachi had come up to do an event. Mike, who leads Soul Survivor, had come up to do an event and he was talking about God and I was just aware in, in that moment that I wasn't in a great place. Do you know what I mean? I, I'd been away, <laughs> you know, I'd been away from the Lord. And as he was uh, as he was just talking about how amazing God is, something just warmed in my heart. It's just like, oh, I've been away, just that recognition I've been away. Anyway, at the end I ended up going up for ministry and went down to the front and just just to get prayed for. And there was this word given to me. Um, just this picture of a bird that had its wings, you know, taped down on the floor. And that was just a picture of where I was. And I was sitting there going, oh, yes. Anyway, what happened in this moment is that I had a revelation of the holiness of God and a revelation of my sin. And I, I haven't had these all of the time, but I, I can vividly remember something that happened 22 years ago. And I remember that moment and it was a snot fest. It was one of those moments where I'm, I'm not sure it was quite as dramatic as um, Isaiah's moment, but it was deeply, deeply profound because in that moment there was just this repentance that went on because the blazing glory of God versus the place where I just had, a, I just had an insight into my mess and my sin. And God, it, it was God's glory and that I was undone. It was like, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. That's what it felt like in that moment. But the interesting thing is that when God undoes us, he doesn't leave us there. It's not just we are undone and then there's no hope that he undoes us, that we realise that there's this repentance that goes on, that there's this recognition of the majesty of God. And then what happens is the next point is that his holiness heals us. He overwhelms us. His holiness overwhelms us. His holiness undoes us. And then his holiness heals us. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongues from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What incredible grace. Isaiah is not destroyed for looking on God while he's still unclean. Instead, he is cleansed. Isaiah doesn't ask for this. And he knows he doesn't deserve it. And he certainly doesn't expect it. I think he's overwhelmed by God. But God graciously, freely cleanses him. Woe is me for I am undone. Out of the darkness beyond all hope and reason. Here comes a seraph with a coal from the altar. So why is the altar so symbolic within this picture? Well, it's the place where sins are atoned for. It's the place where the blood is spilled. It's the place where sins are paid for. And you don't think Isaiah, who was a professional preacher, didn't know what the altar was for. Isaiah always knew that the altar was for the sacrifice of sins. That was the place of atonement. That was the place of forgiveness. And as the coal hits his lips, it's showing us for the first time that the grace of God is because it's not just a theory, it's a reality. Years ago, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave 
this illustration in, in one of his sermons, and I just think it's deeply helpful. He says, if somebody comes to you and says, I've paid one of your bills, you have no idea about how excited you should be. <laughs> I've paid one of your bills. It could be they've paid the postage due, they've paid a couple of pounds, so a package has been delivered. On the other hand, maybe they've paid your mortgage off or your university debt. So when, when somebody tells you, they're like, I've paid one of your bills, you're like, well, how grateful should I be? I don't know the actual amount of debt. The size of the debt actually determines the magnitude of the joy. Isaiah really hadn't seen just how helpless he was before the father. But when he, in this picture, he realises how beautiful and how holy and how majestic the Lord is, he becomes aware. Let me give you just another little picture. The other day, Jen and I were talking about parenting and we were remembering this moment. We were talking with another parent who had a young child. Oh, we've, we've just come out of those early baby years. Thank Jesus. Um, they were hard work. But in that first year of having a child, there were about seven or eight months in, often a mum will turn around and they'll ring up their mum and they'll say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I didn't realise, I didn't realise what you went through for me. You become so aware of what your parents have put into you. I've been so ungrateful up to this point. I did not realise. I never realised how much you gave to me. I never realised how much you loved me. We begin to be healed. And then finally, his holiness heals us. And then finally, his holiness commissions us. Last week, I actually spoke about from comfort to commission. And I said that this is going to be a season of commission. And here we are back in commission all over again. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Can you, can you see the way, the beautiful way that you go through this passage? And that the Lord just brings us to this place of restoration. He never leaves us in that place of condemnation. We don't stay. He, he might well convict us. So there is a difference between conviction and condemnation. So when the spirit of God comes and he broods over us and he broods over an environment, sometimes the Lord will come and he will make us aware of something that's not right in our life. When we're like, search me and know me, we come before the Holy Spirit it's really important that it's holy. And we're like, God, search me. And then sometimes there's this conviction of, oh, do you know what? I'm not right with that person. I need to go and sort out that relationship. Or actually there's this thing going on, there's this thought pattern going on in my life that's not all right. So the, the spirit of God can come and convict, but it doesn't leave us condemned. And that's exactly, what, again, what we see here with Isaiah. This holiness, it doesn't leave us in a place of feeling crushed. It always is redemptive. It's always leading to freedom. And then in this bit, we see this commissioning. And the truth is, Isaiah is being called to a really, really difficult job. God says, I've got a job for you, the prophet. I need a prophet to go to a group of people who are never, ever going to listen to you, to go and spend the next 30 years preaching to people who will be annoyed with you. Your life's going to be continually in danger. Do I have any applications? And Isaiah immediately jumps up and he says, here I am, send me. Why? Because it's no longer about him. It's no longer about him. It's about the majesty and the holiness and the beauty of the Lord. He's seen the king and the king commissions him. 
God brings courage and he brings peace. And Isaiah surrenders and he's like, I'm yours. I'm yours. Use me as you will. It's a beautiful passage, this Isaiah. It's challenging. It's deeply confronting. Holy, holy, holy. So in finishing, pursuing holiness is to pursue Jesus, to become like Jesus. It's God's best for us. And it's not his burden. It's not this burden that he's putting on us. He's saying, become like me. Follow me. Will you join? Will you join in with that? I'm just going to pray in finishing. Jesus, we thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That you are a redemptive God who is always about bringing us into life and into freedom, that you never leave us in a place of condemnation, but yet you do want us to change. That change and transformation is at the heart of the gospel. You want us to become more like your son. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And Lord, we're just, I just, I, I can't speak on behalf of you, but I can say, Lord, make me more like you. And I pray that that would be your prayer. God, I want to look more like you. Show us the places that need to change. Lord, I want to keep changing. I want to keep growing up before I grow old. In Jesus' name, amen.